Welcome back to another episode of the Fatal Conceits podcast, dear listener, a show about money, markets, mobs, and manias, not necessarily, and certainly not always in that order. If you haven't already done so, please head over to the Substack page that we have at bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com. There you can sign up for uh, plenty of daily articles from Bill Bonner. We also have lots of research reports, uh, courtesy of Dan Denning, Tom Dyson, uh, and of course, many more episodes and conversations just like this under the Fatal Conceits podcast tab at the top of the page. It's my pleasure to welcome back to the show today uh, a good time, uh, longtime friend, I should say, Mr. Byron King. He's an energy and resource expert, the editor of the Lifetime Income Report, and all round man of letters. Mr. King, welcome back to the show, sir. How do you do? I'm doing very well. Greetings. Thank you. And thank you, everyone out there who's watching, listening. Uh, reading the transcript, whatever. Appreciate it. Yeah. Always a pleasure to have you on, Byron. I always, I always feel like uh, you've probably forgotten more about whatever our given subject is than I may ever know. So, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks again for taking the time, uh, mate. You and I were catching up on the state of the world recently from our respective, uh, mm-hmm. our respective home bases. But actually, you were on tour down in a rock and mineral kicking expedition of some sort down in the heart of Mexico. How was your trip and what did you find? Oh, well, I, yeah, thank you for even bringing it up. Yeah, I, I went to the uh, legendary Sierra Madre of uh, central Mexico. Most people, when they think of Sierra Madre, they think, oh, yeah, the Humphrey Bogart movie, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, where these desperados are out there and they're, you know, they're fighting over gold and whatever. And in the end, everybody kills everybody else and the gold dust blows away in the wind. You know, it's not very... Real, real morality tale there, you know, um, but but there really is a Sierra Madre, and it is a really, really rugged range of mountains in central Mexico, pretty much just south of Texas, uh, and it extends, oh, I don't know, 800, 900 miles south. Uh, there, you know, there's the Gulf Coast of, of Mexico, then there's the Pacific Coast of Mexico, and then there's this big mountain range in the middle, and that's the Sierra Madre. And it is an extension of the Rocky Mountains and it is filled with minerals. And people have been you know, mining great stuff there for, for literally 500 years. And I visited uh, a company, I'll just name the name because it, it's a publicly traded company. It's, it's a nice company, Avino, A-V-I-N-O, uh, silver and gold. Um, and they are, I think, the oldest uh, mine, you might say, in uh, uh, possibly the Western Hemisphere, you know, the mine as in found by the Spanish Portuguese. I mean, there were, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the, the Native Americans, they, they were digging ore even before that. I mean, that's how the Incas got their gold and all that. But uh, in 1558, uh, Cortez and his, uh, Cortez who burned his ships uh, and his conquistadors were, were making their way across the Sierra Madre. No maps, no nothing, just, you know, kind of Native guides to whatever's over the next hill. And one night they were camped out and somebody literally spilled the wine. I mean, they'd knocked over a bucket of wine or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, everybody was mad because, hey, dude, you spilled the wine, man. Putty uh, fell. <laughs> yeah, terrible. So the next morning they wake up, the sun's coming up and they look where the wine had spilled. And there's elemental native silver just sort of cropping out from the ground there. Wow. And I was like, whoa, you know, we spilled the wine and God graced us with, you know, with <laughs> silver. So... They, they named the place Avino, as in vino being wine, 
but then a vino in Spanish means it comes. So it's kind of a play on words. It comes from the wine. You know, we, we've spilled the wine and God gave us the silver. So they started mining silver there in the 1560s, 1560s. Think about that. Do the math. Um, and uh, they mined there for several hundred years, uh, you know, as much as they could. They didn't have the high explosives. They didn't have modern techniques or anything else. They were just chasing veins. Um, pulled a lot of silver, gold, uh, lead, uh, other, mineral, other minerals out of there. Um, and then uh, after the Mexican Revolution, nothing happened for decades and decades. And then in the late uh, 1900s, well, yeah, yeah, from about 1968 on, uh, some people started the mine back up. But well, there's a group called Avino, uh, which, which is running the operation now. They've you know, you know, they they deal with everything. You know, you got your labor issues, you got your just Mexican jurisdiction issues, you got uh, logistical issues, everything else. But it's an up and running mine, in, and even in a low metals price market, um, they're making money. Uh, so wow. what I like about what I like about them is first of all, we got there, we suited up, we went two thousand feet down to the rock face of the mine, uh, down this spiral <laughs> decline. It was, it was total gas. Um, and uh, they've got beautiful ore, you know, it's uh, copper, zinc, lead, silver, gold. Um, and uh, they're, they're, it just, it's the gift that keeps on giving. So uh, uh, I, I look at Avino as sort of a call on future higher metal prices in that regard. So there's, there's a little plug, but it was fascinating geology. It's great geology, it was incredible history. That was, and that was just one part of the trip. Another part of the trip, we went way into the outback of the Sierra Madre and saw this uh, silver exploration site on you know tiny little Canadian company that's working there, but gorgeous, gorgeous geology. I mean, it's it's just the, this granite diorite that intruded into this limestone, and the the contact edge is what's called a scarn, and just unbelievable uh, mineralization. It's you know des destined to be, you know destined to be one of those you know multi hundred million ounce you know uh, plays if not multi-billion ounce plays i mean the sierra madre like i said it's the gift that's been giving for 500 years so so that that's what i do in my spare time is, is you know, i travel around uh and, and yeah, so it's, kind of rock. uh yeah and kick, so, kicking uh, rocks collecting stories that's fantastic uh, you know yeah. it it just as you're speaking uh, and with the enthusiasm that you're speaking with and the depth of knowledge that you have it, it, it i'm just recalling one of our recent conversations in which uh, you were lamenting the um, just the the dearth of expertise that is graduating from the U.S. in the hard sciences right now. It's not it's not uh, you know it's not sufficient to just have these gifts that keep giving. You've got to have people who you know got to have the human capital and the knowledge to be able to go in, do the drilling, do you know uh, all that all that work that that you know so so well. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I, you know, since since you since you brought it up, I mean, I'm in the I I'm, I'm giving a talk not too in the not too distant future in Las Vegas with with our good our good friend and colleague Jim my called Jim Records. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a an event in Las Vegas, and they asked me what's the topic of my uh, talk, and I said, hmm, well, I I think the title is going to be What Would Admiral Rickover Say? Hyman Rickover, you know, the father of the nuclear Navy. He wrote a book in 1959, do the math, 63 years ago, Education and Freedom. Uh, mm. It's it's out of print. You got to buy it on eBay or whatever, you know. <laughs> education. And it's all how ironic about, it's out of print. <laughs> this is 1959. It's all about how um, bad the U.S. education system is or was back then. And, and then he actually had a set of congressional hearings on the subject. Um, 
American education a national failure. Uh, this is a uh, this is about almost 400 pages of uh, congressional hearings on how bad the U.S. education system was back then. This is in the post-Sputnik days of the late 50s. Um, what Rickover found, Rickover, you know, if people who don't know the story, you should. But if I'm not, you know, I'm not judging you. But you know, he, you know, he graduated Naval Academy in the 1920s. He served in the Navy through World War II. At the end of World War II, he went down to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and said, "Teach me about this nuclear stuff that you guys are doing." And so he became an expert on nuclear power. Uh, he said, "Hey, we could take this nuclear energy and run submarines on it and run ships on it." But what he found early on in his efforts was that there just weren't enough people who understood the math and the physics and the chemistry and the engineering to do what he needed to do. And so, and so in addition to being, you know, an admiral who uh, promoted, uh, uh, you know, the nuclear Navy and, and, and what have you for many, many years, I think he finally left in about 1982. I think they finally, you know, kind of showed him the door. Uh, he, was, he was quite elderly, but he was, he was very, very sharp all along the way. Uh, uh, but he was a champion of improving the American education system. We need more math, we need more physics, we need more just you know general rigor in our curriculum. We need to uh, teach foreign languages. We need to study, you know, real history. We need to teach people to write. Uh, and, and he was he was lamenting these things. And, and, in, and in in this book, in the Education of Freedom, uh, 1959. Uh, again, this is this is about a 300 page book, 200, 275 page book, uh, just talking about how how bad the education system was in the U.S. and you know school districts everywhere. I mean, no nobody. Nobody escaped the sting of his lash. I mean, the, the elementary <laughs> schools, the high schools, the colleges, the grad schools, uh, we, we were not doing a good enough job. And arguably, you know, 63 years later, we still aren't. Uh, and, and, and which brings us around to why we're talking here. Yes, exactly. I, was, I was going to. There's not was, enough things we need to run the world, is there? Uh, because there's, uh, <laughs> again, with the fact, there's not enough people out there who, understand what's going on, understand what we need, why we need it, where it comes from, how to get it, where you have to go, what do you have to do to make it all work? You know, so, so, so perhaps well, with that introduction, we can. Yeah, well, let's, <laughs> let's, let's connect some dots there because you've, you've put a lot on the table, uh, Byron. And, um, you know, one of, one of the things that, that occurred while you were uh, around on the, you know, on the trails in, uh, in the deep heart of Mexico, of course, and something that you and I uh, exchanged some emails about at the time. Speaking of uh, speaking of energy and getting it from one place to another was, of course, the uh, September 26 uh, explosion, sabotage, what have you, on the on the Nord Stream pipelines up there in the Baltic Sea. Uh, you were jumping on trains and planes and in airport lounges, but we were still managed to fire off some communiques. Um, first of all, what was your uh, what was your read on that when you when you got the news across the wires? And I, I want to just kind of set the scene here by saying, you know, we up here in the in the cheap seats, me a lot further up in the peanut gallery than yourself, uh, Byron. We may never know what's you know what was the underlying uh, you know what really went down there, but it's it's uh, you know it's worth at least some investigation and some kind of clear headed. Uh, analysis, because I think that, you know, there are certainly going to be knock-on effects. Oh, it, it's, it is a, it is a matter of uh, historical, of, of a historical pivot, uh, you might say. I, um, 
I would I would put it up there with the uh, you know with assassinating the Archduke in Sarajevo in uh, June of, of uh, 1914. Uh, I would put it up there with uh, the sinking of the Lusitania. I would put it up there with the Gulf of Tonkin. Mm. Um, uh, really, if if you want to get historical back to where we began, I would put it there with Cortez burning his ships. Cortez's you know, ships, Cortez, yeah. <laughs> Cortez burned his ships uh, as if to say. Guys, we're going into the mountains, and there's no turning back. Yeah, we're one not way from here. Yeah. Does, does not work that way, fellas. Uh, Cortez was lucky. Uh, he, you know, managed to uh, uh, he managed to keep his head on his shoulders uh, for a good while longer. And but uh, but yeah, so I, there I was in the Sierra Madre, you know, with, with very intermittent cell service, and you know, we'd be up over a hill and down in a valley, and up over a hill, and you know, and, and like you're at the top of the hill, and like, oh, quick, let's. You know, maybe I'll just kind of see if I can get a signal. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. I'm downloading emails or whatever. You know, and then you down down you go. It's like, you know, like what the heck? Somebody blew up the Nord Stream. Are you mm. kidding? What's going on here? You know, um, so uh, you know, what happened? Well, like you said, it's one of those things that you know we may never know the true, real, absolute story. You know, who killed J JFK? Where's Jimmy Hoffa? You know, all the, it's going to one of those mysteries of, of uh, everything. Um, you know, people, you know, the instant was, oh, Putin did it. You know, Putin, 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 Russia, Russia. You know, and it's like, hmm, you know, I mean, well, you know, why would why would the Russians blow up their own pipeline? I mean, I suppose you can have that supposition. You know, you can think that, but I mean, they already had the valves closed, so mm. now what? You know, uh, well, we're going to blow up the pipeline just to make sure. Well, you know, okay, that's that's one thing. But in, in getting back to that burn the ships thing, you know, I mean, you know, what what have we really done here? Well, we've definitely made sure that Germany's not going to get any Russian gas, not this winter. You know, um, if Germany and Russia were having real quiet, sub rosa, under the radar discussions about, you know, hey guys, come on, you know, maybe we can work something out here. Uh, you know, well, that's foreclosed. You know. Um, yeah. No. No. You know. I mean, we're, the pipes are the pipes are blown up and full of seawater. You're not going to pump much natural gas this winter, and how? Who knows how long it'll take to fix? So, you know, if it, maybe they have to replace, you know, five miles or ten miles or a hundred miles of pipe. I don't know. Maybe you know. You know. I, I don't. I don't think the entire pipeline is destroyed because they have these shutoff valves along the way. Um, but it. But it can't. It's not good. If you're Russia, you know. You. you know, if you're Putin, if you're Russia, you, if you're the general staff, you've got. You've got two things that you're balancing. You've got your military power on the one side. You've got, I've got my tanks, got my jets, got my troops, you know, got my rockets, you know. And over here, it's kind of like uh, this is my peaceful side here. You know, if we, we can trade, we can have energy. I can, you know, sell you natural gas and, you know, nice clean burning, you know, fuel and all this. You know, it, so it, it's a trade-off. You know, mm -hmm. for a couple of months, we're going to be very aggressive. We're going to roll the tanks, shoot the artillery, you know, blast away at the battlefront. But then another. You know, then every now and then we'll say, but if you want, you know, we can work something out and here's your guess. Well, we just, you know, somehow or another, this whole, you know, this whole option for the Russians just went away. Um, you know, who would want to do something like that? You know, would the Russians want to do that to themselves? You know, well, you right. know, I mean, pe some people are crazy, but I don't think the Russians are that crazy. You know, would the Americans do it? Well, the U.S. military came out and officially denied that they did it. You know, they go, we didn't do that. Well. Okay, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll kind of take your word for that. I mean, I, you know, it's not that, not that, 
not that generals and admirals never lie, you know, but I mean, okay, I, I hear you, you know, I mean, well, well, if the U.S. military, did, whose military did, you know, I mean, this was not some fishing trawler that, you know, caught the anchor right. or whatever, you, know, you, had, you had at least three, maybe four explosions. Um, it's a crime scene, uh, you know, when you think it through, uh, beginning with, you know, just the radar tracks of what airplanes were around, what helicopters, what ships were on the surface, and not just right then, I mean, you know, within the past weeks or even months, because you can make things happen even months, you know, uh, after you set the charge. Um, and this is uh, international waters too, it should be pointed out. This isn't in, a, in an area that's a, a declared war zone or even an undeclared uh, war zone. It, this it, is- well, te Technically it was Swedish environment, uh, Swedish economic zone and okay. Danish economic zone. Um, so Sweden and Denmark are involved just because it was on, in their, you know, exclusive economic zone under the law of the sea. Um, and, and they were the so, two that first registered the seismic activity, I think, and the, and then it was subsequently Germany that the the line operators that noticed the whatever ninety four percent plummet in plummet in uh, gas pressure in the lines. Sure. Um, so, so so things explode. Well, no, well there there are some other clues there. Just the acoustics of what's going on, because the Baltic Sea is wired for sound. They've got sound listening systems all over the place. For, you know, because people are always listening for submarines and what have you. Uh, there's a whole acoustic library. You can tell a lot just from the, uh, the, 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 the waveform of the explosion through the water. I mean, you can tell whether, is it a, is it a fast burning, you know, high power explosive? It a, is it a slower burning ex explosive? I mean, you can tell a lot about that. Um, uh, the, 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 seism the seismographs in Sweden, you know, measured it. You can tell a lot from the what are called the P waves and the S waves on that. There's a lot of geophysics involved in that. Then eventually, I mean, once the, you know, once the water clears and it's like safe for divers to go down, it's a couple hundred feet of water, 200 and something feet uh, of water. Uh, you go down, you look around, you know, and right. you, you take pieces of the steel. Uh, the steel will record, you know, what blew up. You know, there, you know, there's ways of taking that steel and making it talk to you. Uh, if it was a cutting type of a charge, you know, a shape charge that cut in, that leaves, uh, you know, uh, evidence. Uh, there's explosive residue. Then there's whatever was the package of the explosion. You know, was, was it a, was it a, just a charge? Was it a timer? Was it a, a mm -hmm. torpedo? Was it, you know, something? You know, uh, it's going to leave debris all over the place. It's going to be all over the ocean floor. So the guys would be out there, you know, picking it up and, and uh, finding it, so there's a there's a there's a definite crime scene and a lot of forensics to do there. Um, the people who did it know who they know who they are, and they did it. They're not talking. The people who didn't do it, they know who they are too. But you know, how do you how do you trust everybody else? Who they're all? I'm denied. I deny it. I didn't. Do, well, I know I know I didn't do it, but I don't know that you didn't do it, even though you're denying that you did do it. You know, right. you're in one of those one of those war game uh, uh, scenarios. So there's I mean, a lot of people uh, that are. I was just going to say there are just to that uh, to speak to that exact point. There are a lot of people who are who kind of put their hand up very shortly afterwards, and and also some months before, as you mentioned, you one might have deployed, um, you know, chips or subs or or delivered the package uh, sometime previous. If we're going consequent uh, sequentially, um, I just want to read you a couple of quotes uh, that people are kind of focusing on and. You know, we, we can sort of just discuss them after, but I'll take you back to January 27. I'm sure you've read this, but just for the interest of our listeners, this is the Under Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Newland, 
uh, on January 27th of this year, she said, and I quote, with regards to Nord Stream 2, we continue to have very strong and clear conversations with our German allies. And I want to be clear with you today, if Russia invades Ukraine, one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward, end quote. And then if she was, uh, you know, rattling sabers or maybe talking above her pay grade, it was 10 days later when the big guy Joe Biden was on hand uh, to clear up any ambiguity. This is uh, from, it was reported in ABC and elsewhere, but I'll quote here, uh, President Biden, if Russia invades, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it. And then the reporter follows up with, but how will you do that exactly since the project is in Germany's control? Biden responds, quote, I promise you, we will be able to do that. Now, that's not to say that, uh, you know, maybe Mr. Biden did not follow through on his promise, um, but it was a day after, the, the, that is to say, September the 27th, the, the day after these uh, explosions, when uh, the former foreign minister, former Polish foreign minister, Radek Sikorski, tweeted, Thank you, USA. <laughs> this was one day after the attack. And uh, if listeners want to uh, get themselves, want to bone up on Mr. Sikorsky's uh, political platform, you can go and check him out on Twitter. There's a, a banner picture of him sharing a happy moment with, uh, with President Biden. He's the chairman of the EU-USA delegation for the European Parliament, all of which is to say there's a lot of sort of scuttlebutt um, oh. around this, a lot of finger pointing. Um, well, what do you the, make of all the that? The U.S. had no role in it. Uh, between Newland and, and President Biden, they sure as hell, you know, painted the country into a, an evidentiary corner, uh, you know, with their big mouth, you know, with their collective right. big mouth. Uh, you know, and I think any police officer will tell you, you know, when when the husband dies, you know, the first suspect is the wife. When the wife dies, your first suspect is the husband, you know. Um, and, you know, when, when somebody says they're going to do something and then it happens, one of the first suspects is the person who said that they're going to do something. Do something. <laughs> so, 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 I mean, this is, you know, this is, a, you know, this big mouth diplomacy, you know, diplomacy by tough talk, you know, you know, talking all this macho stuff, all this, you know, this, you know, President Corn Pop and all this kind of thing that, you know, that Biden's so famous for, you know, he, he always has a story for everything. He's always been involved in everything, you know. He got arrested with Nelson Mandela in Robbins Island, and he, you know, he was in the civil rights movement way back when. And he, he, he the other day, he was talking about how he grew up around Puerto Ricans as he's down in Puerto Rico visiting. Yeah, come on, you know, you're a white boy from Scranton, <laughs> uh, you know, who grew up in uh, in Delaware. You know, he, 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 I grew up down from those oil refineries there, you know, and everybody I knew had cancer. I was like, really? I mean, you know, okay. <laughs> okay. You know, um, you know, I mean, him, him and his big mouth, you know, and mm -hmm. um, I mean, and so, so if, if he didn't do it, or if, or if, if he didn't sign off on it, and, or if his people didn't sign off on it, not that, not that, you know, President Biden knows everything that goes on in the U.S. government, if you get my drift, um, uh, you know, he sure, he sure did, you know, he sure did paint himself, paint the country into a nice corner on that. Uh, the, the people who are, the, the group that is really affected it immediately is Germany, um, mm. because uh, Germany is, have, you know, there is no way that Germany is going to get Russian gas anytime soon, period, the end, full stop. Um, and uh, Germany is shutting down its industry. It's shutting down its, you know, steel industry, aluminum industry, 
glass industry, chemicals industry, BASF is the largest chemicals company in Europe. And pretty much if you shut down BASF, you have shut down um, all of the downstream things, you know, all the paints, all the resins, all the chemicals, all the everything. I mean, you, you can barely bake bread in Europe without uh, using something that came from some chemical factory of BASF. And if they don't have natural gas to run, to run their hundreds of different operations, uh, an awful lot of chemistry doesn't happen. And a lot of other you know, cascading effects don't happen. Um, Germany is already talking about, uh, you, uh, you know, what, what, I mean, it's one thing to talk about the cold winter and how are we gonna keep people warm. And, and uh, I, I should mention that I was on this trip that I was last week in Mexico, we had a, a couple of German guys with us who had come from Germany, they're investors in, in, the, in, the, in the company that we were visiting. And they were saying that, you know, from Frankfurt, from Munich, and from a small town, I think near Leipzig, uh, they were already being told by their municipalities, you know, okay, guys, you have to take fewer showers, you have to turn down your thermostat, you're going to take sponge baths, you mm -hmm. really only need to take a shower about every week or 10 days, uh, because you can just wash your face and you'll be okay. Uh, wow. th this, is what, this is what they're being told in Germany. And these are like fairly you know, upper, upper level investors. I mean, it's, yep. these aren't the huddled masses, you know, yearning to breathe free or anything like that. These guys, <laughs> these guys can afford to come to Mexico on a nice trip and, you know, and visit their investment in the, in the copper mine, the gold mine, you know. Um, so uh, this is what they're being told over there. So Germany, wow. Germany is immediately affected, you know, they, they, no gas for you and you're not going to get any gas and don't think that you can you know, sort of, you know, negotiate a backdoor deal with the Russians to get that gas, you know, uh, this, this is, you know, this is, uh, this, like I said, this is the Lusitania moment or the Gulf of Tonkin moment, except, you know, you know, uh, it, it's Germany that's being screwed. Russia, when they say, well, you know, Russia's not going to make any money selling gas. Doesn't, they're making plenty of money. Russia's making more money selling oil and gas right now than they were making before the war. You know, I mean, uh, they're, they're, se they're selling their product at a higher price than before the war. Um, say, well, the Russians have to sell it at a discount. Yeah, so what? That discount in, is a higher price than they were getting 10 months ago, you know? Right. And, um, <clears throat> and, then, and then the people who they sell it to, they turn around, the Chinese, the Indians, they turn around to either refine it or maybe they don't refine it and they just send it off to somebody else. And, they, and then they get that nice little, you know, plus up that nice Delta, uh, you know, they, 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 buy, they buy the $85 oil from Russia and then they sell it for $105 to, you know, to some refinery in California, you know, which is why Californians are paying, you know, almost seven bucks a gallon for gas. So um, for, for motor fuel gas, not natural right. gas. Um, yeah, it, it, everything's connected to everything else. And, and when, you blow up, when you blow up a pipeline like that, you know, you, you, you've destroyed German industry plus much else in Europe. You're, you're putting multi, multi-billion, hundred billion dollar companies literally out of business. You don't just, we're not just winding down gently. We're just going to take a little bit off the top here, just a little off the top, Ernie, you know, that kind of a thing. No, 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 no. You know, we're throwing a switch. We're, we're like the buzz pulling, cut. pulling the switch. We're closing yep. the gates and putting a big padlock on the factory gates. Sorry, guys, you got to go home. Uh, we, we have no energy to melt the steel. You know, we have no energy yeah. to run the machines. Can't bend anything. Uh, so, no, so what is that? What, what does that uh, what does that look like then, uh, Byron? Because I think you know readers with a, a sense of of uh, European history will know that you know going back into I think it was probably the late '60s, early '70s. Uh, certainly, you know German Chancellor Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik this this idea that you would have Russia 
um, you know, providing some version or, or you know, an increasing supply of, of, uh, of energy sources to, uh, to the continent and that that was going to, you know, this was going to help be the, uh, you know, the common interest that would help promote peace and et cetera, et cetera. This seems like, as you said, this is a ship burning pivot or <laughs> pivot away from that. But not only, you know, if we look, if we look toward the continent, we see, you know, all of the, the cascading effects that you've, that you've just outlined. But also, if we look uh, further east, we see, you know, Russia has now been essentially that bridge has been has been detonated, or, you know, the, the, it's the connections been severed. So they they will, as you mentioned, they'll pivot to other customers. This will, you know, this will foster a growing alliance between uh, China and Russia. There are projects underway. There's talk underway of of, uh, of increased commercial dealings there. What what do you see looking on both sides of that um, of that political coin, geopolitical coin? Well, you're you're absolutely right that Russia has for several years now been you know uh, moving closer and closer in many, many ways with China. Uh, they, there's already a major uh, pipeline called Power of Siberia number one, uh, which moves massive amounts of energy from Russia into China. They, are, they have a crash program right now to, to build Power of Siberia number two, which is mm -hmm. going to be you know, more, more gas that you know, as, as out of the Russian pipeline system and into the Chinese pipeline system. And the Chinese are a bottomless pit you know, for all intent and purposes in terms of their ability to absorb, to absorb the energy. Um, uh, you know, and that's just in, in natural gas. Uh, in the Northern part of Russia, there's the Yamal uh, project, which is an LNG um, project. They, they pull the natural gas out, they liquefy it into liquefied natural gas, and they send it all over the place, including, you know, uh, the United States. I mean, a couple of times a year, a Russian ship or a ship carrying Russian Yamal gas pulls into Boston Harbor, you know, and I mean, here's, here's, here's New England, which won't, they won't allow about, oh, maybe a hundred miles worth of pipeline, you know, the, the New England liberals, you know, they won't allow about a hundred miles worth of pipeline to be built from Pennsylvania across New York, you know, in, in Connecticut, Massachusetts. They won't allow those pipelines to, to move, which mm -hmm. would bring a lot of that Marcellus, you know, Pennsylvania gas, Ohio gas, West Virginia, bring that straight up into New England. No, 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 no. We have to bring a whole sailing ship, a whole LNG <laughs> carrier into Boston Harbor and unload it in the LNG storage so that we can keep Boston warm in the wintertime. Um, and um, I assure you that when that LNG carrier pulls into Boston Harbor, it's a major military evolution. I mean, the Coast Guard's out there, the National Guard is out there, the helicopters are flying around, they got jets in the sky and everything else. Uh, that is a big thing, not because it's Russian gas, just because it's gas. You know, it's a mm -hmm. uh, you know big, huge you know therm thermos uh, thermos ship, you might say, uh, full of LNG. Uh, you you don't want to bump into anything. You don't want any bad. You don't want anything bad to happen to that ship. Uh, right. So, but but in the last couple of years, I mean, you can look it up. It's in, it's in the it's in the news accounts. You know, uh, Russian gas, Boston. Google it. Um, you'll you'll find an article after article after article year after year after year uh, of, of that. So so Russia 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 is exporting gas LNG. Um, they're exporting it at uh, terrific prices. Um, I was uh, I saw something this morning that made just an eye popping uh, eye popping statistic. 
when we had that energy crash in, um, I guess it was in about like March of 2020, remember when everything mm-hmm. crashed yep. because of the, the early days mm-hmm. of the COVID, you know, right. stock market sold off. And, I mean, at, at March, April that year, I think oil sold for like negative $39 a barrel, That's which right. was a trading thing. It just had to do with, you know, clearing the papers and stuff like that. At any rate, at that particular point, um, uh, one you know, thousand cubic feet of LNG was selling for $1.90, buck 90. 1.90 today in europe that same mcf that same thousand foot of gas going for almost 60 so wow uh, so times <laughs> 30 uh yep. in a matter of a little over two years so uh uh and and it's just uh it, you know it's the the crazy economics of what's been going on in order to clear the market um right. and uh, if you know for all the listeners readers viewers etc here in the united states don't think it's all happening. Oh, it's over there. You know, it's all in Europe. I don't have to worry about that stuff because it's all European. No, no, no. You know, because when here in the United States, when we're exporting, you know, all of this, you know, marginal natural gas off the top, you know, we are we are raising our natural gas prices to a global level. Uh, not that we're going to be a European level, but I mean, if you were paying, pick a number, you know, three or four dollars an MCF you know, a year or two ago for to heat your house, for example, or to turn the burners on on your stove or something like that, you may very well be paying instead of three or four, you're going to be paying, you know, seven or eight or nine bucks, you know, for your, your it's going to cost you twice as much and maybe three uh, to heat your house this winter as, as last year. Uh, I, right. I assure you, look, you, you don't, you know, look in your filing cabinet for all your paid bills from the last year or two for your, from the gas company and look and see how much they were charging you per MCF. And you just wait until December, January, February. You know, I mean, I mean, people are talking about, you know, the upcoming election. What are the big issues of the upcoming? Nobody's talking about, no, not very many people are talking about how uh, Americans are going to have a hell of a hard time heating their house this winter. I mean, you know, may, I mean, may, you know, maybe not these Americans at the top of the of the income pyramid, but pretty much everybody else, the other the other 75 or 80 percent of the population. You know, some people are just not going to be able to afford it at all. Uh, mm. Fortunately, we have laws about you can't turn off the gas in the middle of winter and freeze people to death. You know, you know, in most most places. Um, but a lot of people are going to come out of this uh, situation very broke, very indebted. Uh, they're not going to be spending their income on other things. You know, because it's in between heating your house and buying those expensive groceries at the grocery store, you're not going to have any money left over for anything. So. Uh, people are saying, well, the economy is going to recover. I'm thinking, well, which economy is going to recover? What, what, which economy would you be talking about? You right. Know? <clears throat> yeah. I don't, I don't see that happening, you know, because it's all no, connected it's, to energy. I was just about to say, as, you, as you've, you mentioned earlier, that everything is connected to everything else. Um, you know, a couple of, uh, of statistics that we've published in the last week or so. Um, you know, we saw uh, last Monday, the Case-Shiller Home Price Index dipped negative. It was the steepest one-month decline on their books. Um, so, you know, maybe that's just the kind of teetering uh, at the top. But another um, another kind of uh, cousin statistic to that was with raising rates um, for the first time in a long time, the average uh, monthly mortgage repayment for the medium income American family has just tipped 50%, which is a non, not a trivial uh, portion of, of one's, uh, of one's budget, then you add into that 40 year high inflation, of course, and, you know, uh, falling stock valuations, it's, it's, of course, not a very good 
um, not a very good uh, outlook going forward. But I wanted to get to um, Mr. or I should rather say Secretary Blinken's um, comments just in the last day or so. And because you mentioned U.S. gas maybe going off to fill some of that some of that market gap over on the European continent. Um, what, what does that do immediately for American gas prices? I noticed just in the last couple of weeks a, a, a chart that I showed on uh, that I saw on Twitter. I'll put it up in our transcript. It showed uh, the big three distillate inventory in the United States. It's been in very sharp decline for the past, well, basically since back in uh, in early 2020. So we're we're at uh, you know multi-year lows there. Um, what do you, what do you see as a kind of price outlook for for Americans who are going to be watching that <laughs> some portion of their gas uh, shipped off abroad? Does that make any impact? Um, I, I don't know. Oh, I think I, I think it will. Yes, the uh, uh, you know when you talk about the price, you know the housing prices. I mean, you know everything. You know location, location, location. Uh, I suppose if you've got the right location, you're still going to be able to sell your house at a, at the price you think you ought to get for it. But but you know, I mean, if somebody was going to buy, if somebody wants to buy a house for pick a number, half a million dollars, and their their mortgage rate's three percent, you know, okay, well they can swing it. But if the mortgage rate is now six percent, well seven percent actually, from what I've heard, um, that 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 puts a whole different uh, pricing mechanism on your ability to. To, to, to finance the house. What can you pay for that half million dollar house? Maybe that half million dollar house is now a $350,000. You know, I mean, everybody, everybody's different. Every house is different, you know, location, location, of course. But uh, so, so the, the froth is off the beer on the housing market. You also see it in the car, in the automobile market, uh, just as more and more of those missing chips, those computer chips that they needed to build the cars and more and more of those things are starting to flood into the market. And we're starting, and, and the car makers are starting to make all the cars they want. They're finding that people can't afford them, and that that has also trickled down into the used car market. Um, the uh, uh, you, you know the, a lot of people have, they have these used cars on the lot, which which they paid too much for, you know, two months, three months, five, six months ago, mm-hmm. um, and you know they they don't want to sell them at a loss. Uh, to which you know some people might say, if you don't sell it at a loss today, you're going to sell it at a bigger loss, you know, in a month or two or three months. Um, just you know, but it's all, I'm not I'm not telling anybody how to run their used car business. Let alone I've, I don't I don't I've never been a used car salesman. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, all the all the you know uh, a good a good used car salesman probably worth her weight in gold. Um, so uh, 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 the you know where going forward. I mean, you know, with, with ener- when energy costs more um, when we're shipping it overseas. Uh, big wax of it, you know, entire tankers of LNG going overseas. You know, it, it's it's going to raise prices here here in the U.S. It's going to cost more to heat your house. It's going to cost more for your utility company that uses natural gas to spin a turbine and generate generate electricity. So your electric bill is going up too. Mm-hmm. Uh, if your electric bill is going up, well, that means that the um, you know that it costs more to run the supermarket. Costs more to just keep the coolers on to keep the frozen foods frozen and the and the fresh produce fresh, you know, so it doesn't all, you know, deteriorate into, into, into mulch on the, on the, on the stacks there. Um, and, you know, I mean, meanwhile, I mean, it, co- it costs more to run an oil refinery. It costs more to refine your oil because it takes energy to refine oil. So your, you know, your refined product prices go up, your diesel fuel prices go up, 
We already have shortages around the country in all sorts of everything, uh, you know, uh, lubricants, uh, uh, you know, things like hydraulic fluid, things like kerosene. Um, you know, in um, you know, people think, oh, diesel trucks—they run on diesel. Yeah, they run on diesel, but in the wintertime, you have to you add kerosene to the diesel to keep it from gelling up in the cold. You know, I mean, there's not enough kerosene out there. You know, kerosene. What's another word for kerosene? Jet fuel. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, so so when you when you have uh, when you have these kind of shortages that are just you know permeating all through the economy, it screws screws things up big time. I mean, one of the problems with, for example, like airline travel. Uh, and, and especially in, in the smaller airports. I mean, if you're flying in or out of JFK or Chicago O'Hare or Atlanta or something like that, Atlanta has an entire pipeline that comes from a refinery from refineries in Texas and Louisiana to Atlanta. You know, they have plenty of jet fuel in Atlanta. But if you're flying to some of these smaller places where they have to haul the haul the jet fuel in on a truck, um, they might not have enough fuel. You know, so I mean, the jets have to fly in with enough gas to fly out, uh, or you know, you fly in and you think, well, we'll you know, we'll fuel up overnight. They might not have, may not have the fuel, so that 6 a.m. Mm. flight out in the morning doesn't happen. Um, you know, this was one of the problems that we saw all summer with all oh, the airlines are canceling flights and all that. They weren't canceling flights just because, you know, I mean, you know, because they they felt like canceling flights. They're canceling flights for, you know, because, you know, they didn't have fuel for the jet. They didn't have lubricants for the jet because yeah. they didn't have. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the air crew couldn't get to the airport, you know, uh, on the on the inbound flight where they were deadheading, so that they could, you know, fly the airplane out the next morning. Uh, these things just ripple through the economy, in a in a very very turbulent sort of way, and and it's all reflected in, in in really, you know, the 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 disruptions that you see everywhere across the economy. Um, yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. In the, to go back to it, would have been. Um... Henry Hazlitt, I'm trying, I was just trying to do the math then, but he was, uh, he was writing, I think he was writing for the, the New York Times, uh, if I'm not mistaken, back in the 50s or 60s. I imagine having a Henry Hazlitt on the, on the editorial board at one of the, one of the mainstream papers uh, today. It's almost unthinkable, but his, one of his main uh, lessons was not just to look at the immediate consequences of one or you know, any given policy, but to look at the secondary and tertiary knock-on effects of those policies and not just for one particular focus group but across the broader economy uh, and that seems to be a lesson that uh, that has been uh, often lost but i wanted to go back just uh, just as we're wrapping up here Byron, the the idea that we could um turn off by you know whether mr putin did it whether you know some uh, coalition of the of the west nato etc uh, did it and again we may never know but uh in any case, the, the taps have been decisively um, blown up up there up there in the Baltic. So whatever the ripple on effects are now going to be, what happens for uh, a continent of people who were um, getting cheap, local, relatively local pipes, that is uh, Russian gas? Um, what happens to all the people who are you know concerned about um, CO2 emissions and so forth who are now going to be shipping liquefied natural gas um, thousands and thousands of miles further. And I've even seen some um, reports of potentially LNG shipments coming from Australia. I mean, that is a long supply line and it's not a supply line that doesn't require energy inputs in and of itself. Yeah, um, 
Well, ocean shipping is a is a relatively efficient way of moving product, you know, from kind of anywhere to anywhere. Although, yeah, you, you know, you're burning up, you know, fuel in the ship to to move it. Uh, Australia, um, I actually uh, visited Australia and had a real nice talk with uh, the Chevron people out there one time. They were developing the Wheatstone and the Gorgon field, I believe, in the northeast of uh, Australia, just offshore there. Um, you know, long-term contracts, you know, to sell into Asia, but there's always some more. Um, you know, right now the price is su super high in Europe, and uh, they are they are desperately looking for for gas. I mean, uh, you you probably saw just a last week or so, last few days, uh, the uh, the the new prime minister of of Italy, um, uh, Giorgio Maloney, um, she she takes office, and the next thing you know. The, the word is that, oh, you know, Russia's not sending gas to Italy. That's not what Russia's saying. Russia is saying we're sending gas through Austria to Italy, but the Austrians are not letting it go into Italy because the Austrians don't have enough gas. They're using it. So um, there's there's one school of thought in the mainstream media that, that, that somehow or another the Russians are shutting off Italy. There's another school of thought in terms of, you know, a different story. The Russians say that they're shipping their gas to Italy, but the Austrians are pirating it uh, mm -hmm. in Austria. Um, so what so what what does that story tell you? Well, what that story tells you is that the European Union is disunionizing, uh, yes. so to speak. Right? Make up a word here. My, put on my Alexander Haig uh, hat and make up words as we go along. But no, um, uh, you know, when, when, it's, uh, when it's every nation having to sort of figure out what they're going to do. I mean, you know, France has a big nuclear industry, but it's sort of throttled back right now for maintenance. And because of drought, they can't cool the power plants as much. Well, well France isn't, isn't exporting nuclear electricity anymore. Um, you know, the uh, Czech Republic has nuclear power, but you know, they've got their problems too. They're not exporting. Um, you know, uh, the Netherlands has the Groningen gas field, which could help quite a bit to alleviate the natural gas shortage in Europe, but for, for local political reasons, because of, you know, we got our earthquakes are shaking the, shaking the China in some people's houses. You know, we're not, we're, you know, we shut in the Groningen gas field in, in, in the Netherlands. Hmm. You know, uh, Britain yeah. has plenty of frackable uh, real estate. I mean, uh, you know, if you do your plate tectonics and put everything back together again, a big whack of, of England, in fact, uh, looks an awful lot like you know Pennsylvania and Ohio. Uh, if you if you do the if you do the geology, uh, except that Britain doesn't want to didn't want to frack. Uh, but one of the first things that Liz Truss has done now is, is said, well, maybe we are going to do some fracking, and uh, perhaps <laughs> it's amazing what people will do when levels. the lights aren't. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's, a, it's amazing what people will re revert to when the. The lights don't come on at a, a the flick of a switch, and uh, you know the bread isn't ready in the morning at the bakery, and you can't get the candlestick maker to, you know, get his his chemicals and his waxes in order. Uh, you know, it's um. I, I was I was just looking, Byron, as you as you were speaking there about the, uh, let's go with your word of dis disunionization disunionization <laughs> of uh, of the European Union. It was you know just a couple of weeks ago that. It was Ursula van der Leyen, I think mm -hmm. I'm pronouncing that correctly, who uh, sent out a not so veiled threat ahead of the Italian elections and said, um, essentially, I'm trying to look for the quote here, but said, um, essentially, 
we will see the result of the vote in Italy. If things go in a different direction, we have tools, as was the case in Poland and Hungary at our disposal. So uh, yeah, this is essentially a, we have a European way, European Union rather way of doing things and any nation therein that deviates from that may expect consequences. I'm not sure if that's uh, that is filed under conspiracy theory, but it, uh, it just kind of jogged my memory there. But it does seem like the European Union under duress, um, you know, ahead of this coming winter. And as we see the supply chains breaking down, uh, does not look like the harmonious, peaceful continent that, uh, you know, that those who set out to build the European Union uh, ostensibly or allegedly had in mind uh, at the outset. Well, it, well, it's hard to have a European Union and it's hard to have a, a unified currency as in the euro when the entire foundation of your uh, economy has uh, begun to crumble. And in the foundation of any advanced economy is energy. We have had this discussion before. Like one of the first times that you and I ever met was I think back around 2005, you came up to Western Pennsylvania and we took a field trip into the oil fields and the, the original oil fields around Oil City, Pennsylvania, Titusville, you know, the Colonel Drake well. Uh, and if I remember, we, we actually, we call it fracked, except that it was, an ex it was a different kind of explosive charge, but, but we, we sort of were watched somebody frack an yep. old oil well and increase the production, you know? I that remember was really, well. And so that, was, that was a long time ago. Um, and, uh, you know, energy is the economy. You know, when people say, mm -hmm. oh, the economy, the economy, the economy. Yes, but energy is the economy because try running the rest of your economy without the energy, you know? I mean, you yep. and I wouldn't be talking. We'd have no electricity for our computers and for the wires and for the sound system and the people out there, everybody who's watching this, you know, without the energy, you know, you would not be watching this You without, you, the energy is the economy, Dr drill that into your head. And, uh, and, so, and so what Europe has said or what the, what the green side of Europe has been saying, we're gonna take uh, a low density, low energy density concept, you know, we're gonna do solar and wind and whatever, you know, the solar, and we're going to take these low density, intermittent, uh, unreliable, because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun goes down every night. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to take these low density energy uh, systems, and we're going to try to run a high energy density economy on it, an economy that's built around, you know, lots of mass transportation, it's built around, you know, using vast amounts of metals and materials and vast amounts of food that has to, you know, people eat this food that has to be transported from all over the place and kept frozen or kept, you know, cool in the coolers and we take it home, put it in the refrigerators, all those sort of things. You know, you're trying to run an advanced high energy density economy on a low, low energy density um, gathering system. And there is a disconnect. And uh, what we're watching now is the disconnect just explode in everybody's face, you know? I mean, in yeah. between the war in Ukraine, military operation in Ukraine, whatever you want to call it. And, and now, you know, with literally, you know, you know the, the analogy of Cortez's ships getting burned. Maybe it wasn't Cortez who burned the ship, but somebody burned Cortez's ship, you know, by blowing up those pipelines in there. It's only one way. Germany's not getting the gas, you know? And uh, yeah, it's and only, it's, only one way from trouble. here. I mean. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's a it's a great uh, it's a great analogy, and of course we're watching. I think the end uh, uh, or the decline of three simultaneous 
buoying agents that have lifted us into this modern cornucopia of prosperity being uh, cheap and abundant energy, which we've through various means kind of, you know, slammed the brakes on or blown up the pipelines, uh, cheap and abundant manufacturing through, you know, the, the, the uh, weaponization of supply chains with uh, from, from China and cheap and abundant credit, which was, you know, this living high on the hog in the future, these things, all for various reasons, and through various complex dynamics in and of themselves are coming to a very abrupt uh, end. And it's, um, yeah, it feels like there's, there's not many places to hide. Uh, Byron, I know I've taken up a bunch of your time here, mate. And I really do, as always, appreciate your insights on, uh, on a, a broad array of topics. But um, before I let you go, tell our good listeners, uh, where they can find your work, where, where they can find your latest thinking, uh, and what it is you're telling your readers in general to uh, to look at over the the back half or back quarter, I should say. Goodness, it's already October. Back quarter of of the year and beyond. Well, I am still with what we used to call Agora Financial, but it, uh, the the you know it is broken into different stovepipes with different names. But I'm with the group called uh, Paradigm publishing, P-A-R-A-D-I-G-M. Uh, I am writing for a newsletter called Lifetime Income with Zachary Scheidt. And I'm also writing in uh, uh, Jim Rickards's newsletter. Um, and uh, you, you'll find me in, in different versions of his newsletter, but, you know, strategic intelligence, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, the gold, uh, gold speculator, things like that. Um, and, uh, if you aren't if you aren't subscribed, uh, I suggest you go, you go to Paradigm, take a look, see what you see what see what you think, and uh, um, you know lifetime income or or the Jim Rickards franchise uh, has me uh, writing writing things. I've been writing about energy. I've been writing about uh, mines and minerals. Uh, been writing about military matters. I mean, you know, Jim Jim said write you know write something about the war in Ukraine. So I, I wrote an essay about a month or so ago on on uh, the origins of, of um, you know, the American approach to air power. I went back to uh, a, a, a Russian guy, in fact, named Dissiversky, who was a, uh, uh, he was a Russian emigrate to the United States who founded the Republic, uh, or, or yeah, uh, uh, Republic Aircraft Corporation, Republic uh, being a great old name in, in aviation, but he wrote a book called uh, Victory Through Air Power, which came out in 1942 and truly changed the uh, uh, thinking of, of the United States towards the use of air power. And it was absolutely critical uh, to, the, to the whole philosophy behind building, an, building a massive air corps in the Second World War and uh, to the foundation of air, the, you know, the US Air Force and aerospace power. So I wrote about that about a month or so ago it, that's in the archives. And uh, yeah, so I, I get I get all over the place, but uh, I and, and then I get I, every now and then I take these fun field trips like down to Mexico and to the legendary Sierra Madre and uh, yeah, go go, go, go kick rocks, go visit yeah. the go, go visit the silver mine that Hernando Cortez uh, discovered when he spilled the wine. And there we go. There we go. And 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 vino veritas. Uh, we've we've since discovered. Byron, uh, we'll we'll have to get you back on again soon, mate. When you're not out on uh, on expedition, uh, kicking rocks and minerals somewhere. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you, and I really do appreciate all your insights uh, as always. Just for our listeners out there, uh, I'll put some links down below to all of uh, the many ways that you can get uh, in follow Byron's 
uh, latest thoughts and musings. And of course, you can find more conversations with Byron and uh, plenty of other analysts, experts, uh, and friends of Bonner Private Research on our Substack page. Head over to bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com for all that and plenty more. Byron, thanks again, mate. Let's catch up again soon. And readers, listeners, audio, I'll see you next week.